Today on The Full Life, we welcome back a guest to talk about his new book, Beyond Racial Division. Stay tuned. Different Christian perspectives coming together to have important conversations about our faith and help you live in the fullness of life God wants for you each and every day. This is The Full Life with Joseph Mancuso, Carolyn Pankella, Hank Johnson, Jenny Stivale, and special guest host Karen Griffin. The conversation starts now. And welcome back to another episode of The Full Life. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we hope you get just that. You get a little filled up of God's love, God's word, and the promises he has for your life. Of course, as always, we invite you to follow us and engage with us on social media, whether it be through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, or you can listen to us on audio podcast. Please like, share, and keep talking to us online. And we always like to start each show off with an encouraging word for all of you. And today's will come from our special guest host, Karen Griffin. When I was in prayer this morning, I just really felt like the Lord just wanted me to remind everyone that he's going to exalt their horns like the horn of a unicorn. And I know someone might be watching right now and they're like, you know, I don't know what that means for my horn to be exalted like the horn of a unicorn. And so I'd like to uh, parallel that with uh, Psalms 92.10. It says, but my horn shall thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I will be anointed with fresh oil. And so when we look at that uh, phrase or what Holy Spirit dropped in my spirit this morning is that he would exalt our horn like the horn of a unicorn, it literally means that we will gain victory. Um, whether it's victory in our personal lives, areas where it seems like you can't have breakthrough, where one and one isn't adding up to two, where life isn't making sense to you today, that God is getting ready to exhort, exalt your horn like the horn of a unicorn. I love how Psalms 92 says that he will anoint you with fresh oil. And I, you know, am reminded of when David went out to battle and how, um, you know, the men that were with him, they anointed him afresh. And so that is what God is about to do to you, to each and every one that's listening today. That as we're, you know, almost, you know, we're, we're already out of the first quarter of this year and, um, you know, maybe life may have thrown you a curveball. But God is getting ready to give you victory in areas. You're going to in another avenue of uh, seeing your horn exalted like the horn of the unicorn is also that you're going to gain salvation. And so someone today may be watching this broadcast and your heart might be tugged at the conversation that you hear. And I want you to know that salvation is yours and you're going to gain that today. And um, it, it's easy as one, two, three. Uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You believe that our Lord, you know, died on the cross for you, that he was buried for three days, and on the third day he rose so that you can live triumphantly and have complete victory in every aspect of your life. So today, my friend, the Lord is exalting your horn like the horn of a unicorn. God bless you. I love you, and make this your best day yet. 
So as I was preparing for today's show, I was thinking back to the beginning of our show two years ago, and I was thinking about the events that were happening. I mean, by episode two, Ahmaud Arbery had been killed. And by episode four, I remember texting Hank the day of George Floyd's death because I, I, I think you posted something. And then I went to go look and I was like, I don't even know what I'm watching. And at that time, I just felt this desire to 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 do more to be you know I saw it in a new way and I think a lot of people saw it in a new way and I was so grateful that we had this platform to begin those discussions together because I think over the last two years I at the beginning felt very uncomfortable or ill-equipped I'll say being able to talk about these issues I didn't know how to do it even though I wanted to Um, and I think that today's show is all about equipping people to have these conversations as we've been doing for the last two years here. So with that, I'm going to intro today's guest. Dr. George Yancey is a professor in the Institute for Studies of Religion and Sociology at Baylor University. He has published several research articles on the topics of institutional racial diversity, racial identity, atheists, cultural progressives, academic bias, anti-Christian hostility, and collaborative conversations as a solution for racism. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today with his new book, Beyond Racial Division. Please welcome back to the show, Dr. George Yancey. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, thank you for being here. I, I, lo- I really enjoyed the book because I think it's very practical and very constructive, which is what I think people need when approaching hard topics. Um, so let's dive right into the book. And I want to start with just an overview of what you present. I think you present really two main paths where uh, people are falling in in the discussion nowadays. And you, in your words, offer a third path. So if you could outline those two uh, just briefly, and we'll go into them more as we talk. And then what is the third path, just as an overview? Sure. So the the two main paths I think people fall into is what could could be called colorblindness and then anti-racism. And colorblindness in simply is that we're going to ignore race, that the way we defeat racism is that we don't pretend that race exists or we ignore race as less as possible. So that is one way in which people try to deal with racial issues. The second path is anti-racism. Now, anti-racism is the term of art today. There's been other terms for this approach in the past, uh, interracial group encounters, things of that nature. But the key is that is a very proactive way to challenge racism at multiple levels. So that's one of the aspects of anti-racism. In some ways, you could say it's a reaction to colorblindness, but it's also a reaction to the institutional racism in our society. One key element, and I picked this up from reading the anti-racist books. So this is not something that I'm just making up out of whole cloth. One key element of anti-racism is that white, the place of whites is to do what people of color want them to do. Not to take leadership, but to do what people of color want them to do. Those are the two major paths. I don't think any of them get us where we need to be. And that's why I propose a third path. And my elevator speech of this third path is learning how to have better conversations with one another so we can find solutions that we can all, all live with. So I can build out from that, but I'll just use that as my elevator speech of the third path. Let's break this down. Um just a little bit further, if we could, about the colorblindness that you talk about in the book. Um, 
what are the potential positives of this thought process and where does where do they fall short a little bit could you break down that just a little bit more for us sure be happy to so in one sense you can think about it in this way in theory colorblindness is great and sometimes it's a very useful way to deal with racial problems for example you may have heard of the loving versus virginia decision which outlawed laws that forbid interracial marriage well they use a colorblind rationale for that and it made sense. And so there can be a place where colorblindness really makes sense. Mm-hmm. The problem is this, because of the racial wounds we've had in our society, when you've had hundreds of years of racial abuse, when on top of those hundreds of years of racial abuse, you have continuing racism today, the way it manifests itself. When you have all that, that doesn't go away by ignoring it. And the, prob- the main problem with colorblindness is that there are problems, and there's a lot of research that shows there are problems that people of color face today, and we can't, they won't go away by ignoring them. And that's why colorblindness ultimately must fail, because you can't ask people of color to ignore the racial issues that are out there today. Dr. Yancey, I was so excited to be on the program today. Um, I had a chance to uh, take a look at your book and um, was just really encouraged by um, just so many things that, that you shared. On the flip side, the anti-racism stance. How do you define what anti-racism is and what are some of the positives and where might this view have some challenges? Yeah, thanks, thanks for that question. So anti-racism, you know, it was hard to sort of get a, colorblindness is almost easy to define, right? You know, just ignore race. What is anti-racism? What do people mean? They don't just mean being against racism because 99.9% of people say they're against racism, yet they wouldn't call themselves anti-racist. So to give a definition, what I did was I read a lot of anti-racist books, popular anti-racist books, such as White Supremacy and Me, How to Be an Anti-Racist, White Fragility, books that claim to be anti-racist and were quite popular. And from there, I looked for common themes. And I came up with three. One is that racism is systematic, it's multifaceted. Two is that we must be very proactive and deal with racism. And three, I've already said, is that the role of whites is to deal with people of color want them to do. So that is the problem I see is that third one. I mean, the first two, I'm down with that. I'm down with let's be proactive and racism is multi-leveled. No, no need to convince me on that. But the third one, so when I look at that, first, let me say, you say what's good. And I think it brings up problems we may not normally see. For example, white privilege is within this anti-racism tradition. There's a lot of talk about privilege when we read the books on anti-racism. And if we didn't pay attention to that, we, we would miss it so easily. It's so easy to miss white privilege because it's so invisible. So it brings to light problems that normally we might miss. And that's a great thing. It says, hey, this, we need to deal with this. The downside is this. And I looked at the research on this. And so this is just my opinion. This is what the research says. The research says that when we approach it in this way, often we get reverse of what we are hoping to get. For example, there's a really great study out there by uh, Dobbins and Calvich. And what they did is they looked at trying to diversify the management at companies. And they found that the team, the, the, man, the, the companies that were able to diversify their management, create 
hire more people of color for their management, not the workers, the management, did not use anti-racism techniques, but in fact, those techniques tend to have the opposite effect. They actually have fewer management of color. So it sounds great in theory, but I think that third problem of, of relegating whites to doing what people of color want creates problems that makes it harder to accomplish the goals that I think that I and the anti-racists would want to see happen. Now that we understand, you know, kind of the two most uh, popular viewpoints towards race in this country, um, anti-racism and colorblindness, can you elaborate on the third path? Um, I think you talk about mutual accountability model and just what are the steps involved in engaging such a model that gives us a viable alternative? What I want to say is why, is, why is this different from the other models? And the way the reason is, is that I think in the other models, what you are seeing is an attempt to tell people, look, do this and we'll have racial harmony. Whereas what I'm proposing, a mutual accountability where everyone is accountable for entering into a healthy conversation with other individuals. Everyone is. That is not, hey, I have the solutions, you accept my solutions and everything goes along fine. That is, I have some knowledge, you have some knowledge, I have a point of perspective, I have interests, so do you. Can we work together to find ways where we can find solutions that we can all buy into rather than I must accept your solution and, or you must accept my solution. I think that is the key. Now, there's more to it than that, obviously. For example, how do we have this communication? Unfortunately, I think in our society, we've gotten into a place to where we don't easily talk to one another with people that we disagree with. Social media has not helped us in this. So what I would say is we have to change some of our perspectives on how dialogue can be very productive to solve problems, not just to make friends, which is great, but to solve problems. That is, I think, is the key to where my approach differs from these other two approaches. Um, there's a lot you talk about with regard to listening and active listening and how you do that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, so active listening. I do research, I do quantitative and qualitative research. Qualitative research is interviewing. So I have to learn how to actually listen to the people I'm interviewing. The example I like to give, because I'm obviously a Christian, I'm a Christian who's written a Christian book from a Christian publishing house. But I did research about 10, 12 years ago with atheists. When I interviewed the atheists, I was not trying to convince them atheism was wrong. You know, that's my belief. I believe atheism is incorrect. But my goal was to hear them out so that I can accurately write down where they were coming from, what they believe. I think the same tendency is true when we are trying to have these discussions. If I disagree with you, it's important that I know what you actually believe and what you actually state so that I can know what, first, do I actually disagree with you? And second, if I do, where and how? And likewise, if you do that with me, then we actually know, okay, here's where our disagreement is. Let's see if we can work this out. So this is, I think, a, a, a critical key towards dealing with our conversation. We've got to be able to hear other people in a way that they can do that. 
let me give you just one technique that I found very valuable when it comes to interviewing and something that uh, we could use in our discussion on race and quite honestly, in other parts of our lives. If, when I think I know what you believe, what I should do is say, okay, here's what I hear you saying and then reiterate it in my own words. If you hear what I'm saying to represent what you believe, you can say, yes, that's exactly what I believe. If you hear something different, you can say, oh, okay, here's what you missed about that. That's a very valuable technique because it allows me to know where I'm getting off and then how I can correct the way I've gotten off and how I can, we have a better conversation because I'll actually address what your concerns are rather than what I've made them out to be. I want you to talk about what his historical racism, institutional bias, subtle racist, subtle racist bias, discrimination, and where that still exists and, and has existed in recent history. Yeah. So I, I know some people will say, look, you know, we don't have slavery today. We don't have Jim Crow today. We're not putting Native Americans on reservations and forcing them there today. We're not taking Japanese and putting them in internment centers and forcing them today. And I say, you're correct and praise God for all that. We don't have that today. That does not still mean that we have overcome all the effects of racism. And just to give an analogy of this, I also study anti-Christian bias. And so when I point out there is anti-Christian bias, I've done research showing that about half of all academics are less willing to hire someone if they find out they're an evangelical for an academic position. To me, that is bias. That is not the same thing as Christians being thrown in jail. That is not the same thing as Christians being killed for their faith. But even though it does not go to that extreme, it still is a problem. Likewise, even though we don't have slavery today and we don't have all these other awful things today, we still have problems. Now, to be fair, I have to give you an example. So let me give you just this one example. Driving while black. There's research. So this is not just, you know, not just my experience, not just my opinion. There's research showing that African-Americans are more likely to be pulled over than European-Americans, all other things being equal. And we know this because they look at black and white drivers and blacks drive just as badly as whites do. And so it's not, you know, that they drive worse. And yet African-Americans get pulled over more than European-Americans. This ties into a larger body of research that shows that all other things being equal for African-Americans and for Hispanic Americans for that matter, uh, all things being equal, they're more likely to be arrested and arrested were likely to be charged. If charged, more likely to be brought to trial. If brought to trial, more likely to be found guilty. And if found guilty, serve heavier sentences than European Americans. All other things being equal. We have to ask the question, is this fair? Is this just? Is this right? And if it's not, then should we not try to correct it? The problem with colorblindness is, it says race no longer matters and we should, we should ignore race. And thus, you're not in a position to correct these types of injustices. With so many interracial, I mean, I know we have lots in our family, too, that it's actually going to keep diminishing. Have you, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Part of what shaped me was a bad yeah. experience entering in, trying to enter into an interracial relationship. And, and I'm grateful that I don't think that would happen today. So we, we definitely are more tolerant. And that's another good thing. And, and, and I'm grateful for, for that. I think we need to be careful thinking that that's going to solve the problem by itself, though. 
because even though you get, even though we, we're having more interracial relationships, and once again, you know, blessings that we have more interracial relationships. Interracial interracial relationships by themselves do not solve racial problems. You have to have more than that because yeah, you know, you know people people can have friends who are mm-hmm. of different races who are married to them and still retain some of the some of the toxic attitudes that we still have in our society. Well, and it's funny that you're saying that's why I brought it up because I thought it was a really interesting conversation because they said that what you're going to see as everybody's you know, the whole color thing or whatever begins to interweave because they say it's it's interweaving more and more, which I think is beautiful. Um, but they said that you're still going to see it come out in different different ways. And so it still comes back that it's always a heart issue. Here's what we know. We don't have direct evidence on this type of approach as concerns racial issues. What we do have is evidence as concerns other issues. There's research on what's been called collaborative conversation, which is very similar to what I'm talking about when it comes to therapeutic relationships in educational settings and how valuable that has been. There's been research on something called motivational interviewing, which I'm still learning more about, but has a lot of the same elements and it's been useful for for convincing people uh, as a way to change some of of their uh, dysfunctional habits. I'm trying to do some some research right now, looking at directly on racial issues. I don't think anyone has studied this directly on racial issues. I can't find that, and um, I'm a scholar, so I think I would found it if it was out there. Also, some small studies somewhere out there. So that's what I think we need now. If if you really want to see the difference between this and what we do today, when I give talks, I, I use the illustration of how we treat people on social media. And how social media is not very productive in changing people's opinions because of the way we treat them on these talks. But the research on persuasion says the way you persuade people is you build rapport, you agree when they have something right, you find common ground. These things help to build uh, a situation to where you can persuade people. So if we have these sort of attempts to persuade us where we're building rapport with one another, finding common ground, in our conversations over the last two years, I don't think I would have, I wouldn't have understood or known some of the issues like the differences in healthcare. I mean, why would I ever think about that if I didn't have a conversation? I mean, how, why would that ever come up in my mind? That, but, but it's true. I mean, it's happening still with pregnant women. I hear all the time. And then your your example of hiring and and uh, even sentencing. I mean, I've learned a lot about the differences in sentencing um, for the same crimes. Um, and uh, residential, we've talked a lot about that on this show. How resident, you know, la- lack of resources can can affect um, uh, can affect economic advantages or economic resources to to rise rise up and make your own way, so to speak. Um, so I think those conversations are really important. I'm really excited for that research. Good. Um, so one of the um, criticisms in these camps that we're in, uh, there's two common polarized camps that we've talked about. One of the criticisms of this third way approach um, with regard specifically to the anti-racism view, um, Dr. George, uh, aren't you being too conciliatory to white people? Um, I guess the question is really why should minority groups, especially black people, 
engage in these talks about fairness with so much history of um, racism, institutionally, personally. Um, it's just this imbalance of unfairness. Um, and then on the other side, why shouldn't white people bear more responsibility? Why is it, um, it just seems like the work is on, the onus is on black people, but why shouldn't white people bear more responsibility? Very good. And so I'm glad you asked, asked that question because I know that, that comes out. So I have approached this one or two ways. There's a couple of ways I approach this. First is just the practical way that, you know, we're, we've tried to sort of, we're going to sort of put pressure on whites to do the right thing. And we see what we've gotten. And it's not been very productive. So just, if you, if you need any example of that, just look at Virginia and the backlash against what schools are trying to do. I'm not getting into whether it's critical race theory or not. That's, that's less important. The, Putting pressure on whites to accept this is not working, will not work, will create backlash. There's research on that. We'll create an attitude of, well, we've already done this. Why should we do anything else? That's all there is to it. So, so this is the practical argument. But here's, for me as a Christian, is a more, even, even a deeper argument. And the practical argument to me is enough. I mean, I want to do what works. But here's an even deeper argument. Do we really trust Black people? If we get black, if, if the answer is whites have too much power, let's give black people power. Why do we have to? Con, why do we have to uh, concede anything to whites? We should have the power now. Do we really trust black people to do what's right in this? Do we believe human depravity affects blacks or not? Do we believe that we are exempt from the Christian concept of human depravity? And I can tell you that our history shows that we are not. You can look at Africa, some of the African nations that once they were free from colonialization. Then begin to oppress people uh, in their own in their own countries. We're not worse than whites, but we're not better than whites when it comes to our own human proclivities. And I, honestly, if I was a white person, I would not trust blacks to have total control over me, even given our history. I want a situation where everyone comes to the table. One final thing on this. If we approach it this way and we bring people into the conversation rather than exclude them from the conversation, they will help us execute what we agree on together. They will, they will stop trying to sabotage our efforts and we can actually get, get more. Now, we're not going to get everything and we're not going to get any, everything either way. We're not going to get everything by forcing people to accept things. We're not going to get everything by negotiating. But what we get through negotiation, we get to keep because we don't have the mobs coming back at us as they did in Virginia at those school board meetings. What we get from trying to force people is we get more of a war. And we're going to get that war because human depravity impacts all of us. And I know it's hard for people to hear this. It's hard for people to hear who've been victimized. It's hard for victims to hear that they too can sin. You know, that, that none of us are exempt. But we have to recognize that because if we don't recognize that, we may find ourselves doing things that we did not uh, we did not think that we would ever do. And I, I, I guess I just have to leave it at, at this. Uh, the problem with trying to say, okay, why should we, con con why should we give in anything to whites? We should get what we can, uh, you know, kind of a power approach. The problem with using power to get what you want is you always must maintain power. You always have to keep power so that you can keep getting what you think is right. And once you start that, 
that is an incredibly dangerous position to be. Uh, when, you, when you think about what people will do to maintain power when they think that they have to maintain power. Uh, and, and so I don't want us to be in that sort of position. I want us to work together rather than against each other. One of the things that you said is that social media has really not added uh, you know, to the conversation at all. It's been more destructive than constructive. So uh, for those in the colorblind camp, why engage in the race discussion? Um, doesn't it draw attention to it? And the second part of that question would be, shouldn't we strive for a society of merit? And can you address the response to personal guilt? I, I think, you know, there are people in the colorblindness camp who they are not open to this conversation at all. Just like there are people in the anti-racism camp that are not open to this conversation at all. And so what I'm saying is, you know, there could be people who are leaning colorblind-ish or kind of think they're colorblind but haven't thought it through who could be convinced. And those are the people we want to have this conversation with because those are the people who then may become a more of a proponent for having a more healthy dialogue and will become more aware, I believe, if they're entering this conversation in good faith, of the weaknesses of colorblindness. They'll, they'll learn more about how institutional racism really does have an impact on people of color. And so I'm very pro-conversation. I know that there are people, though, that on both sides who their, their, their mind is set right now. And God bless them. You know, uh, God work with them however he sees fit. I'm not God, but I will work with those who are open to the conversation. As far as, you know, some of the critiques, as far as, uh, you know, the, uh, the feelings of, of, of guilt or, or things of that nature, I'm less concerned about feelings of guilt, more concerned about feelings of conviction. You know, it's less important to me that someone feels guilty about what happened in the past because that person can, can honestly say, I wasn't there. I, uh, mm -hmm. I, I respect that. I rather try to see if someone can become more convicted to do something about that. And what they may want to do may not be what I want to do, but at least have some conviction. Okay, there are things that are wrong. What can we do as they have impacted us today to create a more fair society today that we can all live with? And what do I need to perhaps say, all right, well, maybe I don't need this as badly if I bring this person on board. It's better to try something that I only want to get someone to help me for something that I need. And so, you know, there's, 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 got, there's give and take both ways. I'm not asking a person just to accept my answers, but I, I want the person to be open to my answers as I should be open to his answers or her answers. I had that experience when we, when we started the show and I got really convicted in a new way about, about how I could be a part of the solution here. And I think you're right that that conviction is the key. And and I was thinking maybe maybe guilt isn't the thing, but I would I wanted to say isn't the right word, but I wanted to say um, indifference maybe is the word. Like it's it's not a direct issue to me, or or, or it's not it, again it's not overt, it's not out there to see. So what is the issue here? And I think that is something that sometimes needs to be overcome, so you can get that information and then get that conviction to be a part of the solution as God, uh, as God asks us to be instruments of justice as he is, uh, as he is a God of justice, I would say. 
Um, but to that end, I want to ask about your theological basis. I want to ask about your, you talked about human depravity, and I know that's a big part of your argument. But as a Christian, what is the theological basis or the biblical basis in which you base your approach on? And how can we, as believers who watch this show, kind of, uh, you know, sort of see that in that way? And so they could be convicted in that way. Okay. So... My theological basis, I think it's really two of them. I think the main one is the whole human depravity, because if we have human depravity, then I cannot completely trust myself to offer answers, especially on issues such as race relations, when it's about getting along with people of different races. I have my own interests. Uh, I have to be confronted, accounted for by other people. So... To me, if we all understand human depravity starts with us, within us, and then we look at other people, the only way we can really balance ourselves out is by connections with other people. We can pray, and yes, God can give us insight, and, and, and yes, God does give us insight. But I think in this life, God wants us to be held accountable by others and hearing other perspectives, and not to be so confident that we are always right. So that's one aspect. And then I think the other aspect, I think is really more clear cut. And that, you know, again and again and again, the Bible tells us to care about others as much or more than care about ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't care about myself at all and I, I let you just run over me. But it does mean that I don't have the freedom just to say, what's good for me, that's what I'm gonna push for. I have to think about others and take their interests into account. And some, as an African-American man, sometimes I'm speaking for other African-Americans, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I can't just speak for other African-Americans. I have to find solutions that other people find their needs being met as well. Not all of their needs, but at least uh, some of their needs. And I think that that's where we should be heading toward. And that's a Christian perspective that we could show the rest of the world if we really, truly looked it out. Our, our thanks to you, Dr. Yancey, for joining us today and discussing your new book, Beyond Racial Division. Tell us where you can get it. Yes. So you can get it obviously from Amazon. You get it from University Press. Uh, you go to your local bookstore and order it. So it's, it's widely distributed. Plus, for the next two weeks, you can use your promo code FL22 to get 30% off and free shipping at ivpress.com. And they can follow you on social, some social media as well uh, to follow you or? I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Facebook and Twitter. There you go. You've listened to him for almost 50 shows. Now let's shine a spotlight on our host, Hank Johnson. My great-great-grandfather, my one ancestor that went back to Liberia, was a slave, earned his freedom, fought in the Civil War, went through Reconstruction. When Reconstruction started going um, terribly for African-Americans with the emergence of KKK, um, with the emergence of you know lynching down south, in about 1878, he decided, you know what, this is too much. I'm going to go back to Africa. I was born in Liberia, West Africa, and spent probably my first six years there. Then due to a civil war, our family started our travel journey. Um, but eventually we settled in North Jersey, which we did that for a couple of years. And then I would say, maybe because I get more clout, but I would say I grew up in Philadelphia but we didn't make it to Philadelphia until seventh grade. So we had a lot of losses during the war, um, including my father passing. I was six, so it was very, very early. Um, the idea of God as father is one that's very, very important for me because honestly, I think it was one of the things that, that 
I would say it saved me because Jesus saved me, but at least in my head and what keeps me going, it's been one of the key, key points. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess a quick story to kind of background that is, so while we were on the run, my, my, my parents had stayed in Liberia and they were just going to sit there. They're like, war is going to come. We'll rebuild the country when it was over. And so I'm on the run with my grandmother and my grandmother actually was on my Muslim side of the family. So she was married to a Muslim chief, but all her kids grew up to be Christian. So thank wow. God for godly women, I guess, because I still don't know how that's possible. Um, but, you know, I remember going to sleep one night. I remember waking up in the middle of the night and I remember there was like a light in the corner and I woke up and I was startled, you know, and I was like, what is going on? And I was scared. I remember thinking what I thought was uh, an angel was in the room with me. And I remember like the thing that was communicated with me was like, you know, your dad has to go away now, but trust your heavenly father. He'll show you how. We found out months later um, that that same night I thought I saw an angel was the same night that my dad was captured and killed, you know? So when we talk about that, when I talk about that God as father, like it's one of those things that's really, really like foundational for me because I'm like, oh, my family would, would be Liberian Baptist, which is very different. Like when I came to America, I learned there's all kinds of Baptists. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I would say our Baptist probably looked more Pentecostal than most Baptists. Um, but when I first settled in North Jersey, the first church we felt at home was actually a small um, Plymouth Brethren congregation, which I had never heard of, never even knew they existed, but they just felt like family. So we started worshiping there. I would say theologically, I probably was more impacted by the Plymouth Brethren. Probably the moment where I finally got peace was at a Sunday school teacher. We're doing, I think, the life of David. And I didn't tell anyone, but to this day, I stay up to like two or three in the morning, right? Um, but I've always been a night owl. But I remember when it started, it was just this week where I couldn't sleep. And I was just like, because I was like, if I die, I'm going to hell. If I die, I'm going to hell. If I die, and you know, which is terrible for a kid to be thinking, but that's where I was. And so at the end of this lesson about David, I don't even know what aspect of the David story. I remember going up to my Sunday school teacher and I was like, hey, so about this Jesus thing, you know? And you have to understand, like, at that point, I really prided myself in being the Sunday school all-star. Like, I knew all the answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read ahead, memorized the verses. So I think the teacher was, like, just as confused as I was. It was just like, what is going on? You know, and I'm just like, yeah. so is it, like, serious? Like, if I really just believe, like, then, like, that's it, you know? And he's like, yeah, is this a trick question? Kind of look he's giving me. And I was like, no, 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 I'm dead serious. Is that it? He's like, yeah. He's like, why? Have you never done that? I was like, well, I mean, I've done it, but I don't really feel like it's sticking, you know? <laughs> um, and then we had this lovely conversation and prayer. Now I identify as an Anabaptist, you know, um, which I love saying that. People are like, what's an Anabaptist? I was like, everything you like about Christianity, that's who we've always been. And if you don't believe me, <laughs> if you don't believe me the Catholics and the Protestants killed us for it, you know? Like, you like believers' baptism? We die for it, you know? You like separation <laughs> of church and state? They killed us for that too, you know? So um, anyway, so I would say the Plymouth Brethren is probably foundationally where I landed theologically. Um, part of my, my growth into Anabaptism, though, was realizing that how I understood Jesus and how Jesus made sense to me was more at home in that faith tradition um, and to some other things. So for example, the Plymouth Brethren um, don't necessarily believe in women in leadership, you know, and that was something that I transformed and grew into the more I studied scriptures and seeing women lead alongside me. 
Um, so that's just like one of the things. Anabaptism for me was where I found home. The Sermon on the Mount, we call that our, our canon within the canon. So for us, a lot of our theology is based there. It's why we're peace people, it's why we don't choose war, it's why we're so Jesus-centered. You know, we're just trying to follow that sermon. Love that. You know, Jesus didn't necessarily come, according to Jesus, to take you to heaven. You know, he came to set the captives free. There's people who can't see, you know, and I think that's why God's genius in the sense of what we go through and what we experience, we think we're the only ones. And the way God works, I found is that eventually you'll meet someone who's going through that same thing. And all of a sudden you're the expert, you're the PhD, right? You're just like, oh, let me tell you how to get through this. You know, and I think that's um, one of the ways that God helped me. You know, I, I've always had people in my life who, invested in me who loved me and who gave me an alternative reality right who said like there is a better way or choose this way or follow this example so i think that's part of our work too we got to set captives free and as we wrap up the show today just a couple of thoughts to share with you first practice makes perfect right we hear that all the time with sports or academics well i would argue our faith is the same if we don't practice our faith, if we don't engage with it, we're not going to be ready to really lean on it in times of trial and strife in our lives. And the same goes for the conversations we have with difficult things like race in our world. If we are not equipping ourselves with tools, if we are not learning the information and developing our heart for those conversations, you're never going to be ready to have them. You're never going to be ready to listen, and you're never going to be ready to be part of productive solutions. And in terms of listening, I want to argue that the best active listener, at least one of the best that we have as Christians, is Jesus. If you look at him through the Gospels, he is one of the best active listeners at meeting people where they're at and taking them to a transformative place. So let's be like Jesus. Let's engage in our faith each and every day. And so we can really lean on it and be part of Productive Solutions. And if you got a little bit of filling up today, well, go ahead and pass that fullness to someone else. So we may truly make the whole world and every person living, having a full life. We'll see you next time.